Hey folks, before the episode, I just want to remind everyone to find us on Instagram after you listen. Look us up at Darkwater Podcast, where you can find extra content and updates tied to the investigation, as well as be the first to know when season two drops. We also have Darkwater Podcast merchandise coming out, and 100% of the net proceeds will go to American Indian Mothers Incorporated of Red Springs, North Carolina. It's a vital nonprofit organization for the community there in so many ways, but don't take my word for it. Check it out for yourself. Instagram is where you can be the first to know about the shirt pre-order, a unique way to give back this holiday season. Again, find us at Darkwater Podcast on Instagram. All right, on to the episode. got Nick here. Welcome back to Darkwater Podcast, and thank you for tuning in to Season 1. It's been two years since we started and nearly three years since our investigative journey took root. This is our concluding episode for Season 1, for now, as we continue to work on our documentary behind the scenes as well as a Season 2. Yeah, it's crazy to think about the journey so far. I remember it was, I think, spring 2018, and I was in Savannah, and we ended up on a phone call, you and I, about uh, the potential for this to be a podcast and or a documentary. And just so everyone out there knows, we really wouldn't be at this point without Nick pushing me in particular, because he was really the only person that uh, saw the worth in this project and pushed me at times where I was beginning to doubt, you know, going through with it. So thank you for that. Hey, thanks for having me on. It, yeah, it's, course, defi- yeah. it's definitely been a journey for sure. And We've definitely learned a lot, not only in these cases, but I think in ourselves and how, you know, we view just life after just learning what we've learned. So I've compiled a list of topics here to move through uh, based on the questions we've received. A lot of people are curious about the woman called S supposedly having her gang, including the the man called O, kill Kristen and Rhonda for stealing drugs and then also killing Megan for knowing. My question is, how does this theory stand up against most of our up-to-date sources? Well, you know, that story is coming up again and again, even in the last episode. Rhonda's mom, Sheila, was talking about just how many people in the community keep reiterating this theory. And again, just to clarify full-scale what that would mean is that Rhonda and Kristen supposedly stole drugs from this female drug dealer. Uh, She had her henchmen go after them. Megan knew somehow and was killed as a result also. Now, we even had one particular detective in the Lumberton Police Department say this to Sheila, that her child stole, quote, a lot of dope, and that's just what happens. Um, Obviously, if true, that's a pretty callous statement on his part. But I just want to point out that we, at least Nick and I, we really don't have anything concrete that can point to those people being involved in this crime. While those people do have extreme criminal records, and I think it would be easy to make the jump in saying, okay, they could have been a part of this. So essentially, these cases are still unsolved. They are still unsolved. And, you know, there's a range of theories even outside of this one. There's the lone serial killer theory. Some people suspect law enforcement was involved in some way uh, due to Robeson County's corrupt past with drugs. There are a number of things that the community is suggesting could have happened. But I just want to point out again that everything we've talked about on this podcast really comes from a variety of several sources. So there's what's supposedly filtered through family to us uh, coming to them from law enforcement. There's previous research done by journalists also covering these cases, and there's whatever we can obtain via public records. So we really only have an arrangement of facts 
And as far as the family goes, you know, that's all information that we have sought in our own investigation of sorts through the podcast. So that's in culmination with all those other sources. And again, while that's been helpful, and we obviously know a lot more than we did when we started, there really is nothing that can point toward a likely narrative for what really happened. Okay, so outside those scenarios, what about the prospect of a lone serial killer, the original source of the headlines that ignited international attention? Is that possible? Are there any leads that might point to that being the case? Well, just like the woman called S theory, there is a lot that makes it look like those cases could be tied to a serial killer on paper at least. And uh, perhaps, you know, internally that is a consideration, but law enforcement has a lot of reasons to not say that out loud. Uh, There's a stigma behind having a serial killer in your town. They are often not apprehended. And, you know, that becomes this sort of cat and mouse game that's always occurring that also can impact real estate. So they have a lot of motivation to not confirm that, even if that's what they do think internally. And as far as just a more philosophical note about the serial killer theory, I think be it the serial killer theory or the idea that law enforcement could be involved, I think in a way those theories are actually comforting to people as conspiracies, even if we don't have definitive proof of that. Um, To me, I think it would be nice psychologically to be able to wrap up all the pain, all the suffering associated with this into one person or into, uh, you know, the realm of corrupt law enforcement. And it may very well be those things, but also it sort of takes away the pressure of thinking about the greater systemic issues that lead to these cases and lack of solving these cases in a place like Lumberton. I think those are perhaps likely scenarios, but I think the last thing America needs right now is more conspiracy theories. And I do hope that people continue to approach these cases based on what is known and not what just makes sort of a salacious headline. Yeah, I agree completely. And as far as, you know, an actual person, if we're going with the serial killer theory, as far as who that could actually be that law enforcement is looking at, we know there are people mentioned in that audio meeting between the FBI, NCSBI, medical examiner's office, and the families, uh, folks that they are talking to in the community, not necessarily confirmed suspects or people of interest, just people that may have been in proximity to the women in the days preceding their deaths. Now, also, there was the trucker in the last episode uh, mentioned by our anonymous participant that supposedly the FBI has been checking on as well. Uh, We know that checks a lot of boxes as far as profiling goes, if that is, in fact, someone they're looking into, uh, someone with a disdain for women uh, and a trucker, you know, and also just being in proximity to the crimes in East Lumberton. So that's all very interesting. Someone perhaps close to that circle of women. But again, this is all information filtered through the families and friends to us as we investigate that is supposedly coming from law enforcement. So I want to reiterate again, this is uh, very much a mystery about what truly happened, despite what we've been able to obtain. And we would be misleading listeners out there if we said, you know, we, we really could lean a certain way about what's happened. But also as far as just thinking about the concept, Maurice Godwin, our buddy, pointed out that, you know, despite the context in which this is happening, if it is the same person or same group of people going after these women, whatever the reason, they are still in essence a serial killer. So, you know, for whatever attention that helped give these cases, I'm glad for it in that sense, if that's helped draw people to the issues encompassing all of this. 
people typically think of the, you know, the sexual component driving serial murder, but it does happen for other reasons as well, you know, including financial gain um, and a few others. So, yeah, it may not be the traditional uh, glamorized version that we think about. Do the families have any viable path to justice in these cases? It's been over three years now with no outward sign in the investigation that further progress has been made. What are your thoughts? So we do have some new evidence we can partially share. Someone that is very close to these investigations uh, has shared with us that there is new evidence and we can't really discuss the type of evidence necessarily or its origins. But what I think is interesting for the audience to know out there is that I think if this does come to light one day, people could see that this case is potentially a candidate to be solved by uh, familial DNA testing, maybe something akin to what happened with the Golden State Killer. So I don't know even if this new evidence is actually being used in that way, but uh, that that's really all we can say about it. And hopefully we'll be able to share more at some point, uh, be it via the podcast or hopefully our documentary in progress. But to make that clear, yes, there is new evidence that gives hope that these cases could one day be solved. Yeah, and it's just one of, another one of those things we kind of have to hold close to the chest for various reasons. Yeah, and we know that's frustrating on the listener end, but we just want to point out, you know, this is very much a real-time investigation, and if we just say something or provide some information off the cuff that really is supposed to be private, that can impact people's lives and we're not trying to go that route. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So switching subjects for a moment, Elizabeth Lee Locklear was found dead in May of this year in a field in Lumberton. Is there any reason to think she's connected to the other cases, specifically Kristen, Rhonda, and Megan? I think there's, I think the question is mostly about, uh, I think cause she was found in similar, in a similar state as the other women, if I recall correctly. So there are a few similarities with these cases in that when she was found, she was also abandoned, in a sense, in a field uh, next to the edge of the woods. And this was off Moses Road in Lumberton. Moses Road is not far from the parts of East Lumberton where the other women were discovered dead or went missing. So as far as proximity goes, it's not as close as the other cases are to one another, but still relatively Close, just a few minutes down the road. So we know she was found by someone passing by in the field. And outside of that, that's all we really knew when we recorded the finale episodes for the podcast. But since then, I have obtained the autopsy, toxicology, and investigative reports. So I want to quickly share what those have to offer. So cocaine and fentanyl were in her system. So likely it would be fentanyl lace cocaine as her source of overdose. Again, I'm not saying that for sure. Uh, it was listed as overdose, so that's my educated guess based on what came up in the toxicology report. Now, as far as the investigative report, uh, this is the exact wording that comes up. Person walking found deceased, unresponsive lying next to a mattress with drug paraphernalia and condom wrappers near deceased. Deceased was laying in on right side. There appears to be no signs of foul play and no wounds of abnormal markings on the body. There is noted to be white frothy substance coming from the nose. And again, I believe that is uh, indicative of overdose. 
EMS called the scene upon arrival. EMS determined patient was obviously deceased. Law enforcement completes the investigation. Per law enforcement, deceased has a history of substance abuse and had overdosed approximately one week prior. They were identified by law enforcement, again, listing no foul play suspected, no suicidal ideations that they knew of. Body was taken to Southeastern uh, Medical Center to be pronounced, then placed in the morgue for autopsy. This episode is brought to you in part by our friends at Green Chef. Green Chef is a USDA certified organic company and includes recipes for paleo, keto, and plant-powered diets. Green Chef makes cooking easy, with options that work around your lifestyle, not the other way around. Our busy and on-the-go lifestyles paired with wanting to eat healthy and delicious meals is a daily chore. I love Green Chef's diverse meal plans. They all come with easy-to-read instructions and pre-measured quality ingredients. Makes it super easy to prepare and delicious for the whole family. With Green Chef, it's easy to eat well and discover new recipes every week that everyone will enjoy. To try it out for yourself, go to greenchef.com darkwater80 and use the code darkwater80 to get $80 off, including free shipping. Again, go to greenchef.com darkwater80 and use the code darkwater80 to get $80 off, including free shipping. Now, there is no clear link between this case and the others that we can uh, discern just from reading that. But I do want to point out again, uh, she clearly was on the same substance as all the other women. She was also abandoned in a sense. When they say no signs of foul play, that's interesting to me because someone clearly still uh, left her there, perhaps even took advantage of her in some manner by what the evidence suggests and left her there at the edge of that field. So connected to these cases or not, that's an incredible tragedy. And, you know, I know it's just standard procedure how these items are listed, but the overdose and the way it's discussed in the report really seems to hamper any urge to look into the case further as far as, you know, what led to that overdose, who else was involved. So I I really almost see that play out in just this very mundane paperwork. Yeah, and I, honestly, it'll probably be undetermined like the rest of the women. Exactly, yeah. And now that is one key difference I'll point out. She was found uh, in a much less decomposed state than the others. She was found sooner. So there is that difference. But again, you wonder with the proximity and... I know people out there listening are saying there's no way to know these are linked. A lot of crime happens in Lumberton, absolutely. But, you know, the lack of justice for so many people there is what allows that void to occur in the first place that people fill with conspiracy theory that, oh, it has to be one killer uh, or this gang or law enforcement, right? And maybe there is some degree of truth in that, or the truth is at some strange place in the middle, we'll see hopefully one day. But, you know, she is one of many cases that seems to have unanswered questions that just continues to drive that pain that so many experience in this area. Because of these records, it reminded me about something that happened this past summer with Senate Bill 168 in North Carolina, which many people believe would essentially open the door to law enforcement being able to keep any death investigation records from the public. And I just want people to pause for a moment and think about 
the implications that could have for investigations, accountability, transparency, et cetera. Uh, we wouldn't know a lot of what we do know about things that went wrong with these cases on law enforcement's end without access to these public records. So that's incredibly important. I mean, you think about that or the 45-day submission period for sexual assault test kits that was instituted after Hanya Aguilar was murdered in Lumberton. It was found that the kits for Kristen Ronda and Megan sat on the shelf for 20 months. Uh, if you're into true crime, if you care about justice, the policy does matter. So from Senate Bill 168 to the submission for the sexual assault kits, again, there is definitely a relationship between the environments that breed crime, how those crimes are treated, solved or not, and the public policy that allows us to approach those issues. So just want to mention how that really does collide with politics. All right. So there were a few interactions online from listeners that you wanted to mention. So uh, can you tell us about those? Yeah, there were a couple interactions I wanted to mention quickly. I know one you actually brought to me that was about essentially people in Lumberton really having some harsh comments about people there suffering from addiction. And I just wanted to toss it out there that I also know people that have been incredibly traumatized just from people in their families suffering from addiction alone. You know, it affects not only the person that is addicted, but obviously everyone in their life. So I truly do understand the frustration and the tendency to want to make those people in turn suffer for the suffering they have caused. But I want to point out that what do we care about most? Uh, punishing those people for a disease, and that is what it is. Uh, or do we want to try to shape public policy that will advocate for a world where less harm is caused by the disease that is addiction? Um, obviously, that is no easy task, and a lot has to happen there, but there is some hope. You look at Oregon right now with the decriminalization of many substances, and perhaps that'll be a case study for how places can move forward. Not that I think we're going to see that in North Carolina anytime soon, but I just want to mention, you know, there, there are different philosophies on how to approach this, but I realize that's also hard to contemplate when you're in those communities directly suffering from the public health issue that is addiction. And I think it needs to be treated as such. I completely agree. And also there was an interesting comment from a member of the Lumbee tribe in one of our posts on Instagram about uh, political candidates endorsing the idea of federally recognizing the Lumbee tribe. And this person was essentially saying that, you know, whatever happens with the election, truly Lumbees have been given the short end of the stick throughout history as an indigenous group. So I just wanted to mention, you know, that was prior to the election, and obviously that's been settled now, but regardless of who's in office, they do deserve more than just the talking point of federal recognition. And just so you know, federal recognition means access to healthcare, various community resources, and that's just really scratching the surface of what that means. And they're certainly not great now. That all needs to be improved. But I thought they made a great point about how much more there is to do regardless of just being federally recognized as far as how all Native Americans, indigenous groups are treated when it comes to those benefits. Yeah, I completely agree. It, it feels like it was more of a talking point when the candidates started announcing specifically the Lumbee tribe. Absolutely, yeah. And so, yeah, federal recognition would be a great first step, but definitely just a first step towards much more that needs to happen. 
this question is kind of very relevant now. How has the pandemic affected the investigation? You know, as far as on our end with the podcast, uh, since our last trip to Lumberton, which I can't recall exactly when that was at this point, we've obviously been working remotely, uh, doing some phone interviews, as people have seen in the bonus episodes. But outside of the podcast itself, we know from Rhonda's mom, Sheila, that detectives told her that the investigation was slowed down as a result of the pandemic. And in addition, we also see, you know, the other end of the spectrum with law enforcement, like the Robinson County Detention Center, an inmate recently died of COVID even after a lot of procedures were supposedly in place and they were claiming there was none there. It's, it's affecting all aspects of this, just like in general with everyone's life. So just more evidence that how we need a better, more unified response to that, be it working on investigations or on our larger national and global scale, of course. All right. Uh, so we've heard this question a lot. And so I'm just going to ask you so you can set the record straight. What are we doing for season two? First, I want to talk about the difference in endeavors currently that we have going on. There is the documentary for Lumberton, which we're always going to be working on uh, in some ways, despite the progress we've made, it's still in its beginning stages, but is very much a serious project to us. We're always going to be working on that. Uh, and of course, we'll provide any relevant updates in some manner if we get any, or if something's made public, of course, we'll discuss that. But outside of the documentary, we are planning a season two. And that's going to be us telling a variety of true crime stories and mysteries that are uh, based in the South, but not just confined to the Carolinas. I think we're gonna stretch outside of those boundaries a little bit. And we know folks on Instagram sent us a lot of great candidates for cases. Some of those we will be covering, but we're gonna keep that all under wraps for now. So we really want season two to be a variety of true crime cases and not just be isolated to this very uh, live real-time investigation of Lumberton, which taught us a lot, but was really challenging to do. So we wanna work on a season two that, again, gets outside of Lumberton and sort of follows various waterways sticking to our namesake where we can trace interesting cases and mysteries along those systems of water. So that's sort of what we're going to follow moving into season two. But as far as the cases go themselves, you'll have to see what happens when we get there. I will say what we're planning on covering first is probably the number one case people have discussed with us outside of Lumberton. So we felt we owed it to listeners to begin with what seems to interest them most and then maybe offer you a variety of cases that you haven't heard about before. Maybe some of you have. I'm very excited, and uh, just keep a lookout for that. We'll be announcing that soon. Definitely, and, and I just want to remind listeners out there to look for us on social media after the episode, and that's where you'll be the first to know about that shirt I mentioned, so you can check that out, as well as all the other updates tied to the cases and various investigations. And of course, when we roll out season two, that's where you'll hear about it as well. But otherwise, I just wanted to say that I know this is a crazy time in general right now for the world. So I hope all of our listeners out there and your families are doing well, genuinely. And we look forward to being back with you as soon as we can. And you can always reach out to us even after season one comes to a formal close for the time being via social media, via email, via our Darkwater hotline. Thank you very much. And we'll see you in 2021. 
And again, I know we covered a long list of thank yous in our finale episodes, but I just want to toss those out there again. Uh, thank you to Nick, of course, for being my friend and partner throughout all of this. Thank you. To- and thank you to Brett yeah. for just being awesome. <laughs> I try. Thank, thank you for Brett. Thank you for Brett for leading the ship. I'm trying. Hopefully not into any icebergs anytime soon. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, thank you to Justin of Moonside for just believing in this project and being willing to provide us the awesome soundtrack to it. Uh, thank you to Maurice Godwin for being a friend and mentor to us throughout this journey. Thank you to some buddies that helped me out as far as doing reading parts for some of the bonus episodes and one in particular that actually went as far as to shadow bodyguard. Nick and I's investigation. <laughs> yeah, bodyguard. Yeah, he I, was our bodyguard. Yeah. First, yeah, first interview, he was our bodyguard. Yeah, he was our bodyguard just chilling outside the hotel, making sure that no one was trying to roll on us as we looked into these murders. So um, there's a variety of people to thank, uh, and we of course have before, but I just wanted to uh, thank them again from the bottom of our hearts because uh, none of this would have come together in the way it did if not for everyone involved, not just Nick and I. And of course that includes everyone listening currently as well. Uh, We wouldn't have any reason to keep doing this if you weren't listening. So we're here because of y'all. Yeah, and ultimately thank you to the community and the people that entrusted us in telling their stories. Absolutely. We are in this 100% for justice for them. And as Nick said, despite everyone else's help, that really is the beginning foundation. The family's willing to, being willing to let us into their lives in this manner. That's something we don't take for granted and something we hold sacred. And we want to do a good job with the information we do receive as this moves forward. And hopefully, Speaking of information, we'll have more to share with you as the documentary does take shape. And again, just follow us on social media to see what's happening with that, as well as season two. All right. Talk to you all soon. Later. Thank you very much.